I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. Welcome to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Today on the show, we have Don Tapscott. Don's one of the world's leading authorities on the impact of technology and business and society. He's the author of 16 books, including Wikinomics, and most recently uh, with his son Alex, The Blockchain Revolution. Don's a member of the Order of Canada. He's the been rated the most influential digital thinker, the second most influential management thinker in the world. He's just wrapped up his second term as Chancellor of the University of Trent University uh, in Ontario. And we had a really interesting, focused conversation on uh, what's needed in terms of innovation and fundraising, the progress that we've made in uh, mental health in Canada. Uh, and it's just a, a really interesting conversation that I wasn't entirely expecting. I mean, Don has been a mental health advocate for 25 years. He was doing mental health advocacy before it was cool. <laughs> but uh, for some reason, I still wasn't ex- uh, expecting uh, quite such a fulfilling conversation. So uh, I hope you enjoyed Enjoy it. Here's my conversation with Don Tapscott. Thank you for coming in. You know, so much has been said about you, said by you. You're the author of 16 books. In the last uh, last I saw, uh, member of the Order of Canada, past Chancellor of Trent University, one of the most influential, actually the most influential digital thinker in the world, second most influential management thinker. Who beat you out for that? Who's first? <laughs> <laughs> One of the most... We're number two. You're number, We're number, number two. two. Certainly uh, the most influential person that I've ever had on uh, these mics, with all due respect to Rosie O'Donnell. Uh, <laughs> but I'm fascinated by your passion and your work in mental health in particular. That's the whole point of this show. Mm-hmm. So... What can you tell me about yourself and about your story that that you're most passionate about? How do you define yourself? Uh, Vis-a-vis mental health? Sure, yeah. Well, Tony Blair, 20 years ago, organized a campaign against the stigma on Mm -hmm. mental illness in the UK. And the theme of the campaign was every family. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I was just sitting in a meeting this week and... uh, One of the other very senior executives at the meeting described the story of how his son was a schizophrenic and had been undiagnosed for many years and finally came into the system Mm. as a result of a suicide attempt. And then the other very senior person at the meeting described that his brother was Mm. a schizophrenic. And then I described how my brother was a schizophrenic too, Dave. He was a wonderful young man, very talented. He was a concert pianist. He was a championship bridge player, sweet guy, funny guy. But he became ill uh, while he was at university. Mm. And he uh, started getting treatment. But back then, this was in the mid-1980s, early 80s, the the treatments were not well understood. And it turns out that he was on an okay kind of uh, psychotropic drug, but the the dosage was a hundred times what they do today. Oh, wow. So he didn't comply and he had terrible side effects and it was a brutal thing. And we did our best. You know, he lived with me and my wife, Anna, for um, some years and eventually he just kind of gave up and he right. took his own life. And so 
it was at that point I decided, uh, well, if there's a cause, I'm going to throw myself behind. This is it. Mm-hmm. And uh, back then, it wasn't very popular. In fact, no one, no one right. would even mention that they had a relative right. that was uh, mentally ill. And were you already very well established in the business community by then? Oh, yeah, I was. Yeah. I was a well-known person. I <laughs> Actually, during the 80s, I wrote a couple of books that nobody read. I think my mother <laughs> bought most of the copies. It wasn't until 92 that I had my first bestseller, and that right. was Paradigm Shift. And then in 94, I wrote The Digital Economy, which they say was the first um, big book about the web, right. um, or the web in business for sure. Yeah. But even yeah. as an influential person, a well-established person, it was still difficult to raise these kinds of issues. Did you ever have any hesitation about speaking openly about these well, issues? Well, I did. And the main hesitation was that I thought the stigma might flow over to my kids. Mm. So my wife and I were presented with an opportunity to fund a chair in uh, schizophrenia um, th- through the University of Toronto and what became CAMH. Mm-hmm. And we had acquired some resources by then, and we were able to do that financially, and we really wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. But we talked to our kids, and we said, they knew about Dave, and we said to them, look, we're gonna, we, we'd like to do this, but, um, and we want to be very public about it, but mm-hmm. if you think there's any problem at all for you in talking about this that your friends might think was weird or mm-hmm. something like that, we'd like to know, know about it. And they were both kind of shocked and even upset at us that you that yeah, you might think that, that we would be. ask this question oh, interesting yeah yeah so we became quite uh, public about it yeah and uh, i got involved and uh, as did my wife in in what is now cam h mm-hmm. and uh, it's been a very gratifying thing that chair was the first and within a few years um member michael wilson telling me that and he was the one who talked me into doing this. Right. Former Minister yeah. of Finance, yes. former Chair of the Mental Health Commission of Canada, the late right. Michael Wilson. Yeah. And also former tragic story because yes. his son, Cameron, became depressed mm-hmm. and and uh, killed himself. And Michael, was um, he was much more visible than I was, and he became very vocal around the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, he told me that that was the beginning. Uh, Paul Garfinkel said the same thing, that they mm-hmm. got 30 uh, people agreed to fund chairs mm. within a few years after that. After yours being the, the yeah, first. Yeah. yeah. So we felt good about that. That was an example. Sometimes yeah. you stick your neck out and um, good things happen. What was the response that you've noticed from the business community, if any, once you've started speaking more openly about these issues? Well, there was a group called the Business and Economic Roundtable on Mental Health. Mm-hmm. And it was created by this extraordinary character named Bill Wilkerson. <laughs> Bill the Bull. <laughs> I've talked to Bill a few times. We haven't had him on the show yet. but yeah. And he talked me into being the chair of that thing. <laughs> so Bill and I would travel around talking to the business community. And it was not about mental illness as an ethical issue. It was as a business mm-hmm. issue. Right. And we did some research on the cost to Canada of mental illness, which turns out is huge. Yeah. It's like all other illnesses combined, pretty much. Mm. And, um, you know, just many things that the stigma, many problems the stigma created. So, if, you know, if you've had a heart attack or something and you, you're you off work for eight months and then you come back, everybody back then would have open arms. If you had some kind of psychiatric illness, were mm-hmm. hospitalized or something, come back and everybody kind of be looking at you funny. Right. And uh, the stigma is a, it's a, it's a very odd thing, but I'm I'm very thankful that 
And we're a long way from seeing it disappear, but it's certainly changed a lot over the years. Yeah, we've we've certainly come a long way, and, and you know, I've even just noticed that in the last ten years that that the conversation is very different. Whether or not that awareness is translating into behavior change uh, and actually translating into into better services, I'm not yet sure. But these things take time. You're you're a futurist. You've been identified as. You've been part of this conversation for more than twenty years now. So, what have you noticed? that has changed since you first started opening up about these things? Well, there have been significant changes. And again, to flash back, um, Michael Wilson uh, was the chair of this campaign for what is now CAMH mm-hmm. 20 years ago or so. I was his vice chair. Mm-hmm. And our entire target was $10 million. Yeah, And it seemed like two years we worked at that, and we barely made it. Yeah. People wouldn't meet with us. Banks wouldn't meet with us. They'd say politely, "Sorry, this is just not an issue." Right. Well, we and at the, t- at the time, the, yeah, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health was used as a threat to send ki- <laughs> parents who said their kids were bad would threaten to send them to nine 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 Queen yeah, Street. Right? I know. Yeah, we've come so far. Yeah, that nine 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 Queen Street was like it was hell. Right, it was the worst thing. Right that could ever happen, the worst place you could go in right. the world. Well, we've had, uh, and I think it'll air before yours, but we have the current CEO of CAMH, uh, Catherine Zahn, on the show. And talking about the wall that was built around the facility, it was called the Provincial Lunatic Asylum at the time, a right. wall built by their own patients to keep themselves in. Right. Uh, and now to see the, the facility. So, and, well, and, and what, a, what a happy fluke right. that that facility and 28 acres mm. was way out in the forest right. 150 years ago, right. and now it's in prime downtown Toronto. Yeah, and actually quite a thriving neighborhood, too, around the around Well, in the part be, because of CAMH now, but yeah, and a lot of um, psychiatric institutions are out in the country, mm-hmm. and that's not a good place for them to be, honestly. Yeah. So the fact that CAMH, the first thing they did was tear down the walls and then right. run the cross streets through it, and eventually... You heard from Catherine, there'll be Starbucks and retail and <laughs> general office space. And there already is general residential yeah. in there, and it's become uh, becoming fully integrated with the community. Yeah. Now, your brother, was he in and out of hospital? Yes, or? he was. Yeah. He was in the Clark mm-hmm. uh, for a while, and then he ended up up in uh, Penetang, not in the uh, forensic unit. Mm-hmm. He was a very... He wasn't a violent person at all, hmm. but it, it was very, very difficult the whole period. And uh, my parents never really recovered from that. My hmm. dad, for sure, his life kind of ended, even though he lived another 20 years. It's an impossible thing, you know, hmm. to think about losing a, a child. Right. This is just not the way it's supposed to go. But again, flashing forward, Cam H, you know, they've raised well over $300 million now. It's part of a billion dollar campaign to build this extraordinary facility. So that was kind of an elliptical answer (laughs) to your question. (laughs) But what has changed? Well, the other really big thing that's actually changed behavior and funding is uh, Bell, Let's Talk. Mm -hmm. You know, George Cope did a great thing stepping up with that. And it's not its not some kind of philanthropy alone. Mm. It's integrated into the whole business. So yes, there's a philanthropic side, but there's an employee side. And if mm. you're at Bell, that's going to be one of the best companies in the world for you to have um, a psychiatric problem because mm. there's a whole process and, and system there to deal with you. And then on the customer side as well with Bell Let's Talk that now mm. engages millions 
of uh, of people and Clara Hughes and other big figures mm-hmm, mm-hmm. coming out and talking about this. Yeah. Well, and we're seeing other companies recognize the business interest as well. You know, right. um, it was a couple of years ago I think that Starbucks Canada had announced a five thousand dollar annual um, psychology benefit or mental health benefit for their employees, yeah. full and part time. Manulife I think came out yeah. and, and announced ten thousand dollars. These are huge. You know, to to talk about putting your money where your mouth is, it's great to yeah. raise awareness, but to actually give people the help that they need seems to be. Uh, a good business decision. Sure, absolutely. So yes, things have changed. I mean, you go to the CAMH campus now, there are names on buildings. Right. I can't tell you how unthinkable that was 30 <laughs> right. years ago. To put yeah, your name someone, on a psychiatric yeah. hospital building. Like yeah. Back then, I remember Michael and I, this one family, The uh, it was a very wealthy Canadian family and the patriarch died. And in his will, he gave away tens of millions of dollars to uh, uh, charities, the entire family had been racked by mental illness. Right, and and today they might consider giving their money to do the brain center, or psychiatric research, or CAMH, or mm-hmm. all, all the other organizations that are doing stuff. And they gave their money to some other uh, cause. And we were so disheartened by that. Mm. And I remember writing, this stigma is so strong, it continues after you're dead. Right. That from the grave, you reach out and you tell people, I don't want to talk about this issue or be associated with it. So for your parents, did they, you know, of course, to lose a child uh, anyway is difficult. But were they forthcoming about the fact that he had died by suicide in particular? No, not initially. Yeah. And they were so devastated, they just couldn't talk about it, really. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the kids, we kind of decided, no, we're going to be open about this. Yeah. Has it cost us? I don't care, honestly. <laughs> yeah. And it probably hasn't, actually. No. If anything, people say, wow, you did the right thing. You know, you acted with integrity. Integrity is about doing the right thing. So yeah. I'm, yeah. Very, I'm, I'm very proud of that. It's fascinating to hear you say that it was such a struggle for a $10 million goal when fairly recently another Toronto hospital that isn't even a psychiatric hospital received a $10 million donation from a single donor. Yeah, just over the transom probably just <laughs> yeah. came in. <laughs> or, or CAMH itself recently received a $100 million right. donation. So it's, it seems very popular in some ways now to, to put your names on the buildings or yeah. to donate to mental health causes in particular. Will that have legs? You know, after, after we reach, if there is such thing as people peak mental health. You know, there are always causes that come and go mm-hmm. historically in trends. What What's to happen next with after okay. the after the spotlight moves somewhere else? Well, it's sure not going to be in my lifetime, mm-hmm. and I doubt it'll be in my children's, mm-hmm. that that tipping point might be reached. Because if you, can, if you look at mental health and mental illness, this is a massive social and economic problem mm-hmm. that is still woefully underfunded. Mm-hmm. It's something like 7% of, uh, this is a figure from uh, a decade ago, but 7% of hospital beds in Canada were people with schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And schizophrenia is a low population 1%, mental yeah. uh, illness. Yeah. So that that's a huge cost. Does it get 7% of government research funding right. um, in, the, in the health area? You know, do... Uh, does the population donate 7% of all philanthropic uh, gifts mm-hmm. towards mental health? 
or seven percent of Canadians view this as their main thing. So, mm-hmm. and 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 that's just the hospital beds. Mental illness as a problem affects a much greater part of the population. Right, right. And depending, you know, whose numbers you believe, and some some people think that you know a third of of all people are going to come into the system at some point, sure. needing some kind of help or treatment. Yeah. So we have a long way to go. the The other thing I'd say is that. There, there have been very exciting developments in treatment, and I'm sure you talked to Catherine Zahn about those. You know, first episode clinics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you catch a kid, a young person, on their first psychotic episode, and your chances that that person's going to live an okay, productive, and almost normal life are hugely higher yeah. than if you catch them after they've been at it a couple of years. Yeah. And, of course... When they've been sick for a couple of years, chances are they're going to get into some kind of self-medication with mm-hmm. drugs and, and stuff like that. And this intersects with the opioid uh, crisis and mm-hmm. all kinds of other things. So that's a really huge thing. And we have all the treatments have advanced a lot. But in many ways, we still have a long way to go. Yeah. I mean, I won't say we're nowhere, but many of the drugs that we're currently using today, and again, I'm not an expert. This is what the experts tell me, sure. are just derivatives of the same um, psychotropic drugs that we had back in the in the late yeah. 50s. Yeah. In many respects, drug companies have have stopped making or researching uh, new psychiatric drugs uh, yeah. for the reason that you're saying. Many of them yeah. are losing their patents, so they're not as profitable anymore. Right. And I think ketamine has been reinvigorating that in some respects, that mm-hmm. the companies have been looking into that. But where do you think, as a, as a philanthropist, as an investor, where makes the most sense, the most bang for your buck? You know, healthcare fundraising as an, as an industry is notoriously uh, inefficient in many ways. You know, event-based fundraising, not mm-hmm. necessarily getting the money to where it can make the most difference. You've been an active investor and, and, and philanthropist in this respect, so where do you think is the most bang for your buck in, in supporting development in mental health? Well, first of all, I'm, we're not one of these people who, we're going to give you some money, but we, who have no real expertise or knowledge right. about the science, are going to tell you how you got to spend it. Right. I don't think that's right. Yeah. And people should give money to an organization like CAMH, and then they should let the experts decide fundamentally Mm -hmm. how it's going to be used. Mm -hmm. Now, within that, everybody's got some personal interests. Right. And so uh, we were approached around the idea of supporting the epigenetics Mm. uh, lab. So the Tapscott Chair in Schizophrenia is a chair um, with an epigeneticist. And this uh, holds a lot of potential. Mm You know, that we all know that genes are at the root of a lot of this, mm-hmm. most of it, probably. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I used to be a big believer in the nurture side of the nature-nurture debate, but now, you know, schizophrenia, it's like this has to do with uh, genetic composition. Yeah, sure. And then uh, fundamentally, it's not that your mom didn't like you or treated you bad no, sure. or, yeah. or something like that. But that's the whole idea of epigenetics, too. And that very much seems to be the, where the science has moved. This idea that there probably is a genetic underpinning, but then mm-hmm. your environment plays a big role that's right. in that. And and that's the, the epigenetic mm-hmm. layer that's, if you like, around a gene. And this is protein. Mm-hmm. And so depending on how that protein interacts with the gene, it can affect the outcome. Mm-hmm and um, cause symptoms or illness and so on. But when you're talking about protein, you're talking about chemistry. Mm. So there is a potential here that we can just 
ultimately take a pill right. and fix the chemistry, and that changes the way the gene um, plays out and uh, and interacts. So um, that that's a I'm very very happy that our modest donation kind of went in into that area. Mm-hmm. Overall, though, I'm. This is not really well known, but I'm a strong. You know, I wrote the book Wikinomics. Yes, of course. And yeah. that was a that was a big book. Actually, they according to Amazon sales, it was the number one management book in the world. That was a blockbuster. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you're being just, modest. Just that inched out, <laughs> inched out the black swan. Um, but um, that book was about collaboration, and mm-hmm. I have some very strong views that I will say to everyone. And seeing as we're talking, I'll say them here <laughs> about. Changing the whole paradigm in how we do research. Like right, right now, it's a very, still a very individualist and co- competitive mm. kind of thing, um, where you know I'm a, a granting agency. Uh, I'm interested in doing uh, this kind of work. I put it out to a whole, an RFP or something to a bunch of bidders, mm. and they all bid on it, and they don't, you know, whatever you do, don't collaborate on the bid. Right. And then one group wins it, and they do the research, and they don't collaborate with anybody else, yeah. and then they create the results, and they're all proprietary, and and then ultimately the results may get shared mm. by some kind of publication that's a private publication that right. sells right back to the same university right. where these people came from. I mean, what's wrong with this model? Basically right. everything. Well, and especially if uh, there have been recipients of public funding, which in Canada, chances they have been at various points along the way. Right. Why shouldn't that information be available then so freely? So why is it that w- there haven't been huge breakthroughs mm-hmm. with, since the 50s? Mm-hmm. Now, you know, some researchers might dispute that, and that's fair enough, but we don't have a cure, if no, you like. No, we don't. And, and we're still dealing with symptoms. We're not dealing with underlying cause. Why is that? Is the brain just too hard mm-hmm. to understand? Well, maybe our research model is wrong. Mm-hmm. In all kinds of industries, we're cooperating together and placing key data in a commons. So you mentioned the pharmaceutical industry. They Mm -hmm. can no longer continue this existing model where you spend $10 billion on a clinical trial and Mm -hmm. then you take it to market and and, uh, you you have a patent on it for a few years and then you lose the patent. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense for the pharmaceutical industry to share clinical trial data in all kinds of areas. Now, unthinkable. Why would they do that? Isn't that our competitive differentiation? Well, no, because uh, experience in other industries shows that you can compete on a different level. Mm-hmm. Like in the case of pharmaceuticals, you compete on customization or delivery systems right, or right. marketing or services or you know, integration or packaging, all kinds of other things. And this has happened in many industries. Yeah, in the way that, uh, you know, Tesla, I think, has been has made the news about this a lot for yeah. installing fueling stations or charging stations uh, and make, or making their technology free uh, to others because that sure. increases the, the... Yeah, rising tide lifts all boats. Exactly, yeah. You know, in the, in the computer industry back then, in the 70s, every computer company competed on the basis of their proprietary operating platform. Mm -hmm. You know, once you bought Digital Equipment Corporation or IBM or Hewlett-Packard or something, you were locked into that platform. Mm. We used to call it the hotel proprietary. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave, you know, because <laughs> the, pos- the cost of porting your software to some other environment right. was prohibitive. It was called doing a conversion. Right. You're, you're too young to know that that is one of the most hated words <laughs> in the entire technical world. Uh, you never want to have to do a 
conversion. Right. So now they all share a common operating system, Linux, mm. and they compete on a higher level, which turns out is more profitable right. and which also uh, generates better value for customers. Yeah. So let's... I would argue, let's rethink our research uh, model. And there's some uh, great researchers at, um, at CAMH who have sort of uh, embraced that idea, arguing that we need to be sharing data, we need to open up mm-hmm. research. And, and to me, that's how you create a com- really globally competitive research lab. It's yeah. not just by having the best people. Yeah. or the best equipment or something like that, but by having the best model that's yeah. going to not just maybe come up with some breakthroughs, but it's going to change the whole game. What can government do from a regulatory and funding perspective to really introduce some some life, some innovation into healthcare, specifically mental healthcare? Well, if I were uh, king of the world, I'd <laughs> say, you know, you want to you want to get funding to do research, you're going to have to share your data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have to cooperate with others. Mm-hmm. And that as governments, we get to drive that change in the paradigm. Right, right. Now, healthcare in Canada, of course, is, is a provincial jurisdiction, but right. the federal government holds the purse strings. Is there a way that uh, financial incentives or, or mechanisms, strings that could be attached from a, that perspective in order to sway those kinds of decisions. Well, I think we're beyond my pay grade here <laughs> in talking about how to make this happen. Right, right, right. <laughs> but... Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the main mechanism is we want to see evidence. We want to see your game plan for sharing yeah. data and for sharing the research. Right. And the people who have the best model of collaboration are the ones that are going to get the funding. Right. Or else we'll share the funding. Yeah. Well, so this yeah. is it. Then, you know, does a private environment encourage more competition or is that an urban legend? Is that a myth? You know, if, if healthcare or, or parts of this enterprise were privatized in Canada, would that encourage more? No. You said, would that help with more competition? Competition mm-hmm. is the fundamental problem here. Interesting. Right. You know, right. People who have knowledge in a critical area of human endeavor should be sharing that knowledge. Right. They shouldn't be competing. Yeah, yeah. It's so it, almost unethical if you think yeah. about it. I'm sure a hundred years from now we'll look back on this period and think, how weird was that right. that they organized research so that one team would not tell the other team right. what they were working on yeah. in order that they could be the team that gets all the money. What what a slap in the face to humanity that kind of model was. Yeah. I think there's this idea that competition drives innovation, but we're seeing that's not working uh, in healthcare. Well, there's a role for competition, but let's compete on a different level. Like the computer industry competed on a level that delivered better value Mm. to its consumers and created a better sort of environment for Mm. information technology to, to change the world. Yeah, it seems like in the last ten years or so, uh, there's been more progress from a uh, in the technological realm than any other time in history. It seems like the the uh, curve has has ramped up dramatically. How can we take some of that progress, innovation, profitability, if that's what it takes, whatever? How can we transport that into other areas of of society, of development, of healthcare, of understanding the brain better, for example? Well, oddly. Many of these technologies may not be contributing mm. to a more healthy environment for people and their brain development mm. as young people. Silicon Valley, yeah. in particular, has <laughs> terrible mental health, according to everybody who's ever yeah. been there. Yeah. Well, also, you know, and this is a very controversial area. I don't know if you know, but uh, it was 1997. I wrote a book called "Growing Up Digital," mm. 
And I did that because I noticed how my own children were effortlessly able to use all this sophisticated technology. And at first I thought, my children are prodigies. Right. <laughs> uh, and then I noticed that all their friends were like them. So I started working with 300 kids and I wrote this book. And mm. it was a big book. And it's some of the vernacular that we talk about today, the digital divide, mm. um, the net generation, and so on. Generation lap, I mm. call it, rather than gap. Mm. Um, first time in history when young people are an authority about something really important. And I was an authority on model trains right. when I was 11. But And they didn't know, even have to go to the stacks yeah, in the library. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the 11-year-old at the breakfast table is an authority on this digital thing that's changing every institution in yeah. society. Yeah. So, And I was pretty bullish on it. And, I, and everyone was saying, oh, kids, they're net addicted, glued to the screen, they're going to lose their social skills. The internet is eating the neocortex uh, mm. today, says, of young people today, says Robert Blind, the sibling society. Mm. guy wrote a book called The Dumbest Generation. And so I got into a big debate. That sure. particular guy, I can't even remember his name, I probably wiped it out. Um, <laughs> it's so traumatic for I you. I must have deba debated him 10 times. <laughs> yeah. And um, I've debated lots of people. Sure. He was a pretty easy one. <laughs> to, to defeat. So but, if he's listening. You know. <laughs> yeah. No, but, it, but because, I mean, how do we measure dumb? Right. You know, IQ. Yeah. And actually, it's a standardized measure, but the, the raw data, it's been going up year over year. And, yeah. And it's never been harder to get into the best universities and more kids graduate than mm. ever, be, ever before. Kids don't give a damn, right. right? Actually, youth volunteering has been rising year over year for 20 years. Right. You know, So these kids are a bunch of criminals and bullies. <laughs> Actually, half of them are bullies. The other half are being bullied. Right. Um, well, um, except youth crime has been dropping year over year for 25 yeah. years. Stephen Pinker talking about how the, we actually live in a less violent world than we've ever yeah. lived in in history. That's right. Right. So there was a lot of mythology around this whole thing of kids and technology. Mm -hmm. But if you flash forward today, there are some kind of worrisome things. I know, um, I don't think I'm telling stories out of school here. My daughter, Nicole, who runs Casper Canada, mm. actually, she was the original NetGenner. All of this work, this entire body of knowledge ended up in millions of dollars of research projects and TV shows and, mm -hmm. you know, all kinds of people talking about this. It was started with her. Mm. And when I just... I noticed one day she picked up my laptop as a six-year-old <laughs> and started trying to figure it out. And it wasn't exactly intuitive at mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. But her children today, uh, she has a two-year-old and a five-month-old, they don't use screens. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't want them near screens for a little while. And she thinks, you know, a young kid, they need to be kissed a lot mm. and talked to and hugged and learn how to throw a ball and hug a puppy and uh, run around and jump up and down and, and have books uh, yeah. read and develop an interest in books. And I, I think her instincts uh, are, are probably right about yeah. that. And then maybe you keep instilling those kinds of values as they get older and they, you won't end up at, the, at a restaurant somewhere where all the kids are on their, their phones mm -hmm. and uh, nobody's talking to each other, right. which I'm sure every, everybody listening to this has seen that happen. Yeah. Sitting next to each other, texting each other, <laughs> the person right next to you. Yeah. yeah, sure. And I mean, I'm still old enough, well, not that old yet, but still old enough to remember a time before the internet, you know, when we had our uh, dial up on our 386 computer on the floor <laughs> in yeah. my bedroom. So, you know, I have yeah. been able to see, I, I think, that difference and, and my own, with my own kids as well.
it does make me ask the question if if it's just a different way of knowing, if it's a different way of being in the world, or is it a, a toxic one? I don't know. Well, I don't think it's toxic right. at all. There are lots of tough issues that come out of this. Yeah. The impact of this technology on a brain, everyone's got it uh, on the brain as a big opinion. I don't think that the data is really clear yet. Mm. We know that young people are smarter today than mm. they've ever been. They have access to information, but there are all kinds of big issues that flow from that. You know, when I was a kid, we tried to memorize a lot of stuff. Mm. Young people today, we don't teach this in our schools, and we should. Every year, kids should have a, a media literacy class mm. where they learn how to manage this information, develop good BS detectors, mm. uh, think critically, integrate the technology in an effective way um, into their lives. You know, and and we don't uh, really really have that kind of stuff, and right. so young people are kind of left uh, on their own. Right. So, and when you're seeing people bullied online as well, in, in particular, yeah. believing everything that they read and realizing, oh, sure. or maybe not realizing, oh, I can just turn that off. Yeah. <laughs> that I don't have exactly. To read it. You know, and is bullying higher today than it was? I don't know. I remember with my little brothers in Niagara Falls, our big challenge many days was to get home mm. without getting in a fight or getting right. picked on. <laughs> right. So, yeah, yeah. so, and that was really tough uh, bullying. Sure. So to go back to your, to your brothers, your brother in particular for a second, if he were struggling now, would things be different? Would his, would his treatment would well, it be different? If we caught him on the first episode, yeah, his life would be completely different today. Yeah. There'd be no stigma in the family at all or with his friends. He'd be on a university where someone would catch that. Mm. And universities today, I mean, he went to uh, Trent University. Mm. And today, I was just up at Trent recently, I'm, as I'm <laughs> wrapping up my Chancellorian duties. Yeah, he would have got to see his brother <laughs> as Chancellor. <laughs> well, that. But he also, today, if, he, if, he, if you're a young person at Trent and you run into a um, some kind of mental health problem, you're going to get picked up. Mm -hmm. The system's going to pick you up really fast. Right. And, um, you know, there are, there, people are going to be all over it. Yeah. And you're going you're gonna to be brought into a proper stream where you're going to get the kind of care you need. Yeah. And maybe they're going to catch you on the first episode and that'll you end up in CAMH. That'll make all the difference in the world. Yeah. Now, 20 years ago, you were way ahead of the curve, you and Michael Wilson and a very small handful of others in terms of getting on the, the mental health awareness uh, team. Where are we going to be in 20 years? What's your 20 years from now? What's your prognostication <laughs> on where we're going to be in mental health in 20 years? Well, I don't know. I'm not really a futurist, actually. Oh, interesting. <laughs> in fact, yeah. I think the future is not something to be predicted. It's sort right. of something to be achieved. Well, where do you but what do you want us to have achieved? I would then, like to. I would like to see a future achieved where the paradigm in research changes mm. so that we move towards a fully collaborative model. Mm. And all the great minds and great institutions working on the brain are coming together collectively to solve these big problems. Again, I'm not a psychiatric researcher, but I have little doubt that if that fundamental change occurred over a 20-year period, we'd see some really big breakthroughs. Because we're capable of doing lots of things as a species. We just need to get the model right so that true collective genius can come forward. Don Tapscott, thank you so much for coming in and chatting with us today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure too. 
Okay, that's it. That's my conversation with Don Tapscott. Don is the author. His most recent book is uh, Blockchain Revolution, How the Technology Behind Bitcoin and Other Cryptocurrencies is Changing the World. So we didn't get a chance to talk about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency or blockchain. Uh, I'm not ashamed to admit, as I said to Don uh, off mic, that I have no idea what any of that stuff means. However, I think there's a whole other interesting conversation that we that we could be having about that, uh, in, in particular about how the rapid rapid rate of change, as you as you would have heard in the interview, uh, has also been impacting mental health. I didn't mention at the top of the show, but you would have heard in the conversation as well that Don and his wife also endowed the Tapscott Chair in Schizophrenia Studies that has been really making some, some uh, incredible advancements in mental health care in Canada. So I hope to tell you more about that as well, as, and hopefully we can get some more people on uh, to talk about that. I hope you enjoyed the show today. If you did, or even if you didn't, go subscribe anyway, so that way you can either get more of what you like or give us more chances to find what you like. <laughs> um, these conversations have been uh, an incredible education for me, and I hope that they've been helpful for you as well. So head over to Apple Podcast and subscribe, leave us a rating, share this, the, the show with your networks, and let us know what you, what you like and what you want to hear more of. You can get to me on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Tumblr, LinkedIn, whatever. I'm on everything. At Mark Hennick at most places. That's at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K. Uh, or you can head over to markhennick.com and find more information about me there. Don't forget to follow. Follow all of those accounts and you can get new episodes every single week, every single Monday on the diverse range of, of people that we talk to on this show, just trying to figure out what it means to be uh, so-called normal. I also want to thank all the people that we have helping uh, out on the show here. Uh, here at E1, uh, Adrian and, and Kimberly, uh, my great uh, editor, Dave, for putting the shows together. Uh, none of this would be possible without any of them. And thank you especially for listening right to the very end of the episode, which I knew that you did. So I'll talk to you again next week. Thanks so much. This has been So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick.